Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. We have two readings in Scripture today, so find Matthew chapter 9, and then if you'd also find Mark chapter 2, and we have two readings that concern the same incident in Jesus' life, and I think it's uh, very important that we get all of the details of this, so we're going to uh, read it from both Gospel accounts in, in Matthew and Mark. Uh, For the past few weeks, we've been studying the miracles of Jesus and talking about his power and his authority. And I really love to study the Bible. And and it's wonderful when you can take the Bible and and put these things together and begin to see the big picture and see God's plan unfolding. And it's Matthew's intent that we would see the qualifications of Jesus as the king. Uh, The Bible promised that a king would come and He would rule the world in righteousness. And so Matthew demonstrates by recording certain miracles of Jesus that he is that king. In our Sunday night series in the book of Revelation, we've been discussing how the world is progressing towards its greatest event. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago, God has been moving the world to the time that Christ will come. And he will restore the world to the perfect conditions that existed at the time of the Garden of Eden. And at that time, all of the earth was in harmony with heaven. Uh, Man had not sinned. The earth was at perfect peace. There was no curse. There was no trouble. Man was not at enmity with God. Uh, Even in the animal kingdom, there was no such thing as death because there were not any predatory animals. So God reigned supreme and All of the earth recognized it. Now, it's true that God still does reign supreme, but for his wise purposes, he has allowed sin to come into the world and uh, has allowed death to infect his creation. He's allowed Satan to usurp his authority and allowed wickedness to build. And as a result of that, the reign of God is not acknowledged by all. Christ is not honored. Christ is defamed. And men do not regard him as their ruling authority. And that's what God's going to change. God is going to bring all of the world back into harmony with him again. Satan will be forever cast down. Peace will be restored. Sin will be deposed. Death will no longer reign. And all of that happens when Christ comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, the particular uh, uh, miracles that we see highlighted in Matthew help us to understand what that glorious kingdom of Christ is going to be like. Now, if you examine or think back on the things that we have discussed thus far, we can see how that the miracles that are found in chapter 8 relate to what conditions will be like in that kingdom. In the first part of chapter 8, we... Uh, talked about the healing of the leper, and that showed Christ's power over sickness in the human body. Jesus healed people of their diseases, and that was a foretelling of that particular aspect of his kingdom. There will be no sickness when the kingdom of God comes on the earth. People are going to live longer, and health will be restored. And then we saw the storm on the sea. And when there was this great storm, Jesus stood up in the boat and he, uh, with just the spoken word, commanded the waves to be still, commanded the seas to be calm. And he did that in a demonstration of his power over nature. And that's also a wonderful aspect of the coming kingdom. Uh, Since Christ controls nature, when he comes, conditions on the earth are going to change. 
And the earth is going to bring forth its food abundantly. There will be rain wherever it's needed. There will be no droughts. Crops will flourish. Hunger will be gone. And that's also promised in the scripture. The, the world is going to be like Eden again, lush and green. And Christ is able to do that because he controls nature. And then in our last message, when we were in Matthew, we we studied about the two men that suffered from terrible demonic possession. Jesus had power over demons. Demons can't resist him because he commands them. And so being the king over the demons, he can dispose of them at any time that he wants. So he commands and they're gone. And that's also extremely important. Because before this kingdom of Christ comes upon the earth, Satan is going to make a significant push to dethrone God. The Antichrist is going to come. He'll be empowered by Satan. And for the king to rule in his kingdom, he has to be able to overcome all of those powerful forces of demonic spirits that will war against him. And so Christ will conquer Satan. And unless he does that, there's no chance that perfect righteousness will reign on the earth. But that is a characteristic of his kingdom. Satan is bound during that time, and he won't be allowed to deceive the world. Then he's going to meet his end in the lake of fire, and he'll never hurt or destroy the world again. And so all of these miracles have been chosen to help us to understand what Christ's kingdom will be like. And likewise, when we get here to chapter 9, we see once again a miracle that gives us a characteristic of that kingdom. In God's kingdom, sin is dethroned. Sins are forgiven, and people are made righteous. I remind you of this verse that would have been familiar to the Jews. In the Psalms, chapter 2, the Bible says, Ask of me, God speaking, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. For thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that is Christ's control over sin. The earth is his. And so he's going to lock down sin. He's going to rule with a rod of iron so that sin doesn't infect the world. And as we notice, as we open this scripture in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus shows his power and authority over sin. And he says to this person, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. That's what it's going to be like in God's kingdom. I know that's been a long introduction to this reading, but I thought it was necessary so that we understand that we're not just being plunked down into the middle of something here without rhyme or reason. It's Matthew's uh, intent here to show the gospel of the kingdom. A A kingdom has to have a king, and he has to be able to rule in that kingdom. And so if the people are looking for someone who's going to meet all of the qualifications, if they're looking for somebody who has the ability to reign then they look at Jesus Christ because he's able to do all of this. He can rule with authority. Now, let's look at these verses. Uh, We're going to read from Matthew, and then we'll go over to the book of Mark to fill the story in just a little bit. So let's stand, if you would, please, for the reading of God's Word. First in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came unto his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. 
but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now, if you'll go then over to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to get some more details here. Mark chapter 2, verse number 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and what a magnificent story that we have recorded in the word of God. Lord, open up the truth to us today. Help us to understand what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to notice particularly verse number 6 in Matthew chapter 9. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. The Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Now there is really the theme of uh, this miraculous healing. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment before we go on to look at, uh, at this phrase once and look at this phrase once again. Uh, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, that's the second time that Jesus uses the Son of Man. We saw it once before in the 8th chapter in verse number 20. There, uh, Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. When we were studying in that 8th chapter in this particular section, I didn't take time to fully explain uh, this term, just how extremely important it is to understand the impact of what Jesus says. Now, we talked about this in terms of humility. Christ was a very humble person, and some believe that this uh, description was self-deprecating. He doesn't call himself the Son of God, but rather the Son of Man in order to emphasize his humility. And the Son of Man, though he is really God, he says I, I, he doesn't have a place of his own to lay his head at night. 
Well, that's not really a picture of a ruling king. And perhaps Jesus did intend on some level to show the people the irony of his life. But in keeping with the theme of Matthew, we can't leave it at that, that this is just an expression of humility. Matthew's intent is to show us the ruling kingship of Christ. Now, we go back to that 8th chapter in the 20th verse. Jesus was speaking to a scribe. And that was a person who knew the Scriptures very well. Uh, The scribes were people that copied down Scripture. They studied the Scripture. They were experts in it. In those days, the copies of Scriptures had no chapters and verses like we have. Uh, They were long-running manuscripts without much division. Usually, there wasn't a break until you came to the title of of another book in the Bible. And so if you wanted to be able to find something in that manuscript, you had to know it very well. You had to know the place where it would be found by all the surrounding scriptures that were there. Now today we have the chapters and the verses. We we have concordances. We have computers that help us to find anything that we want in the Bible in just a moment. And the consequence of that, I think, is that we don't know the Bible as well as these people knew it. We don't know it backwards and forwards like they knew it. But this scribe that Jesus was talking to, he knew the Scriptures very well, and he would have understood the impact of Jesus' statement. So how did Jesus want him to understand that when he said, the Son of Man? Well, listen to what the prophet Daniel said, and the scribe would certainly know this. In Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And so we see there that Son of Man is actually a a description of heaven's glorious king. And Jesus used used it that way in the 26th chapter of Matthew. He said, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, as we look through the Scriptures, others don't often call him the Son of Man, but this turns out to be the favorite description that Christ has for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man because that points to his kingship. And I wanted to give you that information to help you to understand that these miracles, especially the one that we're talking about today, ties into this overall presentation of Christ as the king. And that's the big picture that we're getting in Matthew. So we're going to learn in this message the central theme of the miracle. And the theme is that the righteous king has power over sin. The righteous king has power over sin. And we can't let that theme get lost, as many people are prone to do. We can't just look at these miracles as just a story that's told and the details that are given. We have to keep the theme in mind that what we're trying to see here is that Jesus Christ really is the king. So keep, your, keep that thought in your mind as we discuss it. The Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. That's the character of the righteous king. He must have the power to deal with the problem of sin. Now, we go back to the text. I read this from both Matthew and Mark because Matthew focuses on that one statement. There's his intent. He wants to see that one statement about the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, his intent, as I said, was to deal with kingship, and so to deal with the kingship of Christ. So he doesn't give us all the other details. So we go over to Mark, and we get filled in on the details, and there are also some very good lessons that we can learn by reading all of this together. Now, today I'm going to concentrate on just one particular part of this story. I want to talk about the friends of Jesus, or the friends of this man in this story. And so we're going to talk, first of all, about the activity of his friends. In verse number 2, Matthew simply says this. He says, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed. Now we look at it from Matthew's account, and we wouldn't understand the great difficulty of this man's friends in getting him to Jesus. Now Mark is the one who describes how it happened. Luke also. Uh, When they arrived, there was a huge crowd there that was pushing and shoving and straining to get in to hear Jesus preach. And that was always Jesus' first order of the day. He wanted to preach. Miracles are great. Uh, Miracles can wow us and miracles can captivate us. us, But it's not miracles that actually save a person's soul. Unless you want to consider the miracle of the new birth, that's certainly true. But seeing these outward miracles and all these things that Jesus did, that alone is not going to save anybody. And so what Jesus did, he always wanted to focus on the Word of God. Now, whenever you see ministries that want to focus on miracles, when the emphasis is on speaking in tongues and healing and miraculous gifts of the Spirit, you'll always find that the Word of God gets shoved aside in that process. And so people focus on supernatural revelations rather than they do upon the preserved Word of God. Now, those kinds of ministries don't spend very much time in the Word, Because people like the visual. People like to see things happen. People like their senses to be motivated. They want a demonstration of something. And so when they preach, they talk about other things. But Christ was interested in in teaching the people. But it seems that the crowds were always there for the miracles rather than the preaching. And it turned out that Christ's words, his preaching was too hard for them And eventually, the miracles weren't enough to bind them to Jesus. The Word of God is what changes people's hearts. And so that's why when you come here, you hear the Word of God. This is why we stick with the Bible. The Bible is what we preach because the Word of God says that we are born again by the Word of God that lives and abides forever. So that's where Jesus wanted to concentrate But we see the same scene over and over again in Jesus' ministry. Wherever he went, there were crowds. Uh, There were people pressing him. Thousands of people tried to hear Jesus. And that's not an exaggeration. When we get over to the uh, 14th chapter of Matthew, and I'll be older and grayer when we get there, but when we get there, Jesus is feeding a multitude there. And the Bible says that there were 5,000 men that were there besides the women and children. And so that means, most likely, there were as many as 15,000 people that had come to hear Jesus. And so we see it here in the book of Mark that there were many people gathered together. It's called a multitude. And it was so, there were so many people that it was impossible for this man's friends to get him to Jesus. Now, the place that this this took place was in a house. Many people believe that this was Peter's house in Capernaum. Uh, We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, This would have been the same house that later became a place where the church would meet. In those days, the city streets were narrow. 
Houses would line both sides of these narrow streets. And so if a crowd gathered, access would be blocked off from both directions. And so here you have people that are trying to get into the house. The house is already full. The walls are lined with people. People are sitting on the floor. They're spilling out into the streets. And so there was no way that you could get into the door. People were packed together, straining to listen to what Jesus would say and and trying to see what he would do. And so there was no way that this man was going to get into the house. Now, to further complicate this matter, uh, the man was sick of palsy. And that word means paralyzed. He wasn't able to move on his own. So he couldn't walk there. He couldn't force his way into the door. He wasn't able to do that. And so he was dependent upon four friends to help get him there. And so they were carrying him on a bed like a stretcher. And when they approached the door of the house, they couldn't even get close. Now we notice what they did. They were, they were very inventive. They were determined. The crowd was not going to stop them. And so they went up on the roof of the house and they started tearing it up. I don't know what Peter must have thought about that. Uh, if it was my house and somebody was on the roof tearing off the shingles trying to get in, I wouldn't be too happy about it. But that's what these people were doing. It's what they did. There was no hope to get into the door. So they went up on the roof and they start tearing the roof off. And that's because they're concerned to get their friend to Jesus. They were active about it. And I think there's some lessons that we can learn from these four men who tried to get their friend to Jesus. What can we learn from their activity? Well, I think we can learn, first of all, that there you can't do better. You can't do better than to bring your friends to Jesus. There's not a thing that you could do better for anybody than to bring a person to Jesus. Well, if you're looking for heroes in the story, you can start with these men. They were innovative about this. They, they wanted to get their friend to Jesus. So they're not concerned about all the obstacles that are there. They have a friend in need. And this friend of theirs believed that nobody but Jesus was going to be able to help him. But he couldn't get there. He couldn't go see Jesus. So he enlisted the help of his friends. And they wouldn't refuse him. They got him there. And I think that's something that we need to consider. Do we have some friends that we need to get to Jesus? Are there some people in your family? And are there people at work that you know they need to be seen by Jesus? And do you even care enough to tell them about it? Do you, do you believe that Jesus can really make a difference in those people's lives? You know, I think that's something that we need to emphasize more. We, we need some people in Berean Baptist that care enough about their friends to bring them to Jesus. Now, we used to see a lot more of this. Uh, we used to see people that would invite others to church, but we're not seeing much of it now. There, there just doesn't seem to be the compassion that we ought to have for souls that don't know about Christ. Now, we care about people in other ways. We see somebody that's hungry and we give them something to eat. See somebody that's cold and we might give them a coat. Some of you have helped family members with their rent in these hard economic times And those are good things for you to do. You ought to help people in that way. But the best thing that you could ever do for anybody is to bring them to Jesus. Food is good. It's good to give people food. But people get hungry again. It's good to give them a coat. But a coat wears out and you have to go get another one. It's good to help somebody with their rent. But rent comes due next month again, doesn't it? And you have to pay it all over again. The difference is when you bring people to Jesus, he satisfies their need forever. They never have to wonder about, 
or worry about it again. He satisfies the need. When we think about that woman at the well who was there uh, speaking to Jesus, she was trying to draw water out of the well, and that's because people were thirsty. It was her job, perhaps, to go there and draw out the water, take it back into the city, feed the camels or, or give the fam- camels water, whatever, the livestock, the people. But she was drawing out of a well that she'd have to return to. She was going to be thirsty again tomorrow. She'd have to fill the water pots again. And you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, if you had asked me, I would give you living water. If she just asked, Jesus said, I'll give you water that'll quench your thirst forever. And that's what Jesus does. He satisfies the need. He cures a thirsty soul. He feeds our spiritual hunger. And so without him, that spiritual hunger and that thirst won't go away. And that's why you can't do anything better than to bring family and friends to Jesus because he'll satisfy that spiritual need. Now, why do they need to come to Jesus? Well, we we see a great, great illustration of this, of the need in the story. The physical here demonstrates the spiritual. Why do they have to be brought? Because sinners have no strength to stand. This man was paralyzed. He couldn't get in to see Jesus. And did you know that your lost friends are spiritually like this? They've been disabled by sin. Sin is debilitating. Sin leaves a person blind and deaf and dumb and lame, disabled, spiritually dead. A person without Christ is, is, is paralyzed in the spiritual world. They can't come. They can't get to the, him. And so this is why the Bible says that you have to be the witness. You have to be the preacher for them. You have to be the one that gives them the word, and you must bring them to Jesus. And that's why God doesn't save his people and just automatically take them out of the world. He could do that if he wanted, but God doesn't do that because he has chosen a method for people to be saved, and that is that he uses you and me. He uses us to give the gospel to other people. So he doesn't take us out of this world because he wants us to be his witnesses here to tell other people about the saving message of the gospel of Christ. Sinners do not have any strength to stand. Romans says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So they're without strength, and unless you're willing to bring them to Jesus, they'll die in their sins, and they'll spend eternity in hell. Not one single person will ever be saved without the gospel of Christ. And so this is the job of God's people to give them the gospel of Christ. So you have to love the activity of these men because they weren't going to let anything stop them. And I think they had what we need. They had commitment to a cause. They were committed to the cause. Now, I suppose that there were some that were on their way to see Jesus, but they were a little bit late. Some got there early and got the best seats, but there were some that got there late and they couldn't get in. And I think that there were probably some who saw the difficulty of it, and so they just stopped short. We can't get in to see him, so they weren't determined enough to find a way in. And I think that's like a lot of us. We, we just aren't determined enough. But did you know that God's work is never done without difficulty? You, you ask some of the men in our church and others that have helped invalids and, and have, have helped widows and do things around their house. 
Ask people who come here on Saturdays and take care of the, of the, of the work around this building and make sure that we have a place that we can meet and keep the th- everything in order. Ask some of them how difficult it is to give up their time to come and do God's work. There are a thousand excuses that people can make, and it's so easy to give in to those excuses. And if you're not committed to it, you won't do it. If you're not committed to the cause of Christ and working for him, you just won't do it. Now, these men did what they could. They couldn't heal the guy. They didn't have the ability to do that. Only Jesus could heal him. But you notice that they did what they could. They were stretcher carriers. This is what they did. They could do this. They could help this man to get to Jesus. Now, some of you, I know, you you may have difficulty with the words. It, It might be just really hard for you to talk to people about Christ. And I realize, and I'm not going to say that it's as easy for everybody as it is for some, because it's not. Some people, I think, are better at this. But I also know this, that if you are determined enough and you care enough about people and you do love souls, you can invite them. You can talk about your church. You can be an ambassador for Christ. You can be a good impression on them with your testimony. You can get people to church, and when you get them here, they can hear about the gospel of Christ. And you can be determined enough to do that. You see, if you're committed to the cause, everybody here, if we were all committed to the cause, we can fill these seats. We can have people sitting here, and we can see people saved, and we could use the baptistry more often than we do. And that happens when God's people are committed to the cause. Now, I hate to say this, but I think it's true. We don't see people saved because we don't have the commitment. It's a lack of commitment. I think that's true. But I also think it's true that God doesn't bless us like we could be blessed because we have a lack of personal holiness. Do you know there's some of you that you couldn't convince somebody to come to church because you've already burned your testimony? They're not going to listen to you because there's no holiness in your life. Some of you talk filthy. uh, You use four-letter words. Some of you don't have enough sense to understand the public nature of that social networking. And so there's stuff on your Facebook pages that I know about, and, and you act like that stuff's secret or something. 500 of my closest friends are not going to tell anybody. We're the biggest fool that ever lived, and a hypocrite besides. And folks, I would not be so concerned about what I'm saying right now if I didn't know this, that God will stop us dead in our tracks if we're not holy as he is holy. Now, what's the problem in our church? A lack of commitment. You know, I keep going back to something that Jim Love told me before he left. And and he was really, for the years that he was here, I knew him. He was one of the most faithful members of the church that there was. Uh, He was really faithful, and and probably more faithful than just about anybody I've seen in 40 years of ministry. And he just said to me one day, there's no commitment. People won't come to church. And I stood at the door with him out here many times, looking over the parking lot at 10 o'clock and seeing the parking lot nearly empty because God's people have no commitment. Now, folks, if you are looking for Christian heroes, look for the ones with commitment. Look for the ones that are faithful. Go over to Hebrews chapter 11 and read there about that roll call of the faith. Those were people that were committed. And I wonder where that determination is. Where, where is our commitment to do God's work? 
Where are the stretcher carriers in Berean Baptist Church? Where are the people that would be willing to tear up the roof if necessary in order to get people in to see Jesus? And where are the people that are going to pray for this ministry? And where are people that ask God to bless our church? Where are the people in our church that live lives that make a difference to this world? Now, I wonder about it. Where is that commitment? Where is the testimony? Where is the desire that people would see godliness in our lives and they would have the peace in their hearts that we have because of Jesus Christ? I think those are questions that need to be answered. And I think there's some of you that you need to do some soul searching. Here we are at the beginning of a new year, and it's time to do some soul searching. We need to ask ourselves, The question, are we committed to this? Are we dedicated to God's work? Do we care enough to bring a dying soul the gospel of Christ? Now, I began the message today speaking to you about the kingdom of Christ, and I wanted you to get the connection. What we do here is because we believe the king is coming. We believe that. We believe Jesus is coming back. We do believe he's going to bring his kingdom upon this earth, and we also believe that his servants will serve him in that kingdom. The redeemed of God will serve him in the kingdom. We also believe that we've been made to glorify God. He's the ruler of heaven and earth. And we know this for sure, that the righteous king, the son of man, has the power to forgive sins on earth. He can meet people's needs, and he will meet their needs if somebody will just bring them to Jesus. Now, we have a lot more to to say on this subject in Matthew 9. There's just some wonderful truths that we're going to talk about, and we'll get into some more next week. But I, I wanted to stop here today with these important questions. Are you serving the king? Are you ready for Jesus to come? Are you willing, and will you try to get people to come to Jesus? You know, Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, your, your lost loved ones and your friends have to be ready to meet him. And, and if he doesn't come back tomorrow, and if he doesn't come back next week or next year, in 10 years, you know what will happen? Your loved ones will die, and then they'll meet him then. And at that point, it's going to be too late for their healing. It's too late for their souls when they die. There are no second chances. There's no opportunity to trust Christ after this life. So decisions have to be made right now. People have to know about him now because Jesus is going to come or they're going to meet him in death. So today, we're here in the presence of Jesus, and you're right in the place where you need to be to meet him. And we didn't have to tear the roof off to get anybody in today, but you're here, and you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all you have to do is trust him. And it's a very simple thing to do. The the scriptures tell us that we admit that we're sinners, we repent of our sins, we know that our lives are wrong, and we turn from those sins And then we trust Jesus Christ that he died on the cross to save us from our sins. And I have full confidence in this, that if you ask him, he will save you. He said that he would. All you have to do is ask. And if you need more help, if there's somebody here today you don't know Christ and you need more help understanding what's been said, we have people here that can help you. Men will be in the back of the church after the service. They can help you. I'm here. I'd be happy to talk to anyone today. So we want people to know about Christ. But I also want to talk to the others of you right now. And those of you that are members of Berean Baptist Church, are you committed to this cause? Are you willing to take the year 2011 
and spend some time carrying some stretchers? Are you willing to take some time to do the work that's necessary around here and to help us here and reach people for Jesus? People are helpless without the gospel of Christ, and you have to help them. And I hope that you're ready to meet that need. I hope you're ready to carry that stretcher to bring some people to Jesus. And I hope that if there's any New Year's resolution that you want to make today, that that would be the one that you make. Lord, make me useful in your service. Help me to get people to Jesus. And I think that's the very best way that you can start off this new year. Be a member of this church that helps get people to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen in your word today. Very simple message. It's very direct. None of us should have any trouble understanding this. We see four friends that were determined to get their friend to you. Lord, we just pray that you would work in people's hearts today, that we would understand the issue of testimony, we'd understand the issue of holiness, and that we would understand the issue of commitment to this cause. We can't do the work without commitment. And so I pray, Lord, that you would lay it upon the hearts of your people today, that they would take up their stretcher and go get somebody and bring them to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you yet as Savior, that they might understand that you came to die for their sins and that you'd open up their hearts to the gospel today so they'd trust you, believe in the blood of the cross, the only thing that will save them from their sins. Lord, help us today. Help us as we sing. Uh, work in the hearts of people, both Christians and the lost today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.